Well, let's take our whoa. Let's take our Bibles tonight. Turn over to First Samuel chapter one. First Samuel chapter one. I was blessed this week. I had um, all my brothers were in from out of town, and so all the brothers for the first time in a long time, where we were able to get together and have a nice meal together and just a lot some fellowship, and that was good. It's always good to see your family, isn't it? <clears throat> and it was good to be together. And uh, one lives all the way out in Texas, and the other down in Georgia, and. It's hard to get everybody together. Everybody's busy. You know how that is. Life just seems to pass us by. First <clears throat> Samuel chapter 1, we're going to read in just a moment, but there was a certain man named Elkanah, and uh, he had two wives. His wives' names were Hannah and Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Uh, Hannah not having any children, along with the fact that Elkanah favored Hannah over Peniah, uh, fueled an inter-family feud that truly created a, a tremendous amount of tension in the home. Matter of fact, there was so much tension in verse 6 of chapter 1, you'll notice that it says, and her adversary also provoked her sore. <clears throat> what it's talking about here is that <clears throat> Penina was Hannah's adversary. And that's an interesting word because we know that uh, it's a very strong word, actually, because Satan is called our adversary. In First Peter chapter 5, your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And so here we have a family in which we have uh, one, one wife, and, and I think it's a good idea not to have more than one wife, obviously. And, and you could avoid this, okay? <clears throat> so you might want to consider that. But um, <clears throat> nonetheless, we have an adversary here. Penina is an adversary to Hannah. And uh, the truth is, is Penina, according to the scriptures, would kind of make fun of Hannah. And she would say things like, you know, you're never going to have any children. You can't have kids. Boy, she would really ride her, you know, and, and made it very difficult on her. So much so that she experienced a tremendous amount of stress and grief in her life. Her heart was broken. She wanted to have babies. She couldn't have children. And here this other wife was having all the kids. Even though her husband really favored her and showed her favoritism, that didn't get the job done, did it? <clears throat> now, um, no matter how good Elkanah was, the fact was is that there was nothing he could do that could replace that yearning in her heart for a baby. And um, one day, while she was praying in the temple at Shiloh, Hannah, or praying at the temple in Shiloh, Hannah pours her heart out to God. And over in 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, uh, we read that, which she says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So she makes a commitment to God. She makes a promise to the Lord. You give me a man-child, I'll give him back to you, Lord. So she weeps and she prays with such fervency that Eli, the priest, not only noted her, not only recognized her, but he, he also thought that she had been drinking and was drunk. So much so, she's just so upset and, and so fervent in her prayer to the Lord. But God rewards her for her faith and her prayer and ultimately gives her a baby boy. And she names the baby boy Samuel. Now, Hannah kept her vow. She did exactly what she said she was going to do. She weaned the child. And then she went to Shiloh and presented the child to Eli, the priest. And that's where we arrive at the place of our text. Right now, take your Bible as you are already at 1 Samuel 1. Look at verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 28. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. Now, uh, in, in Old Testament times, it wasn't uncommon to, um, w- to wean means that the child is no longer taking milk from its mother. So that would often, uh, and, 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 and it wasn't unusual for a child to do so upwards of four, five, six years of age. So we know that Samuel was probably anywhere from probably five or six years of age at this point uh, as a result. And so still very young, very impressionable, uh, very difficult, obviously, I'm sure, on behalf of, of Hannah to surrender, submit, or to give her child over to Eli. But <clears throat> notice as we continue now, it says here that, um, uh, verse 5, And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, uh, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Wherefore, <clears throat> therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So, <clears throat> her most precious possession in all the world is now being handed over to this priest, Eli. Now, we don't have time to get into the details of that, that issue with Eli, but I'm going to be honest. Eli was not the best father, father in the world. Eli's sons were really a mess. <clears throat> and, um, but still, he was the priest. He was the man of God. And so here, she's offering this child now, committing it to Eli. That's a step of faith. And I mean, that'd be a difficult step for a mother who obviously loves her child, um, who all those years didn't have a child, and now finally God gives her one, and she gives the child now back to Eli. She doesn't live in the same town. It's not like she's next door. It's not like he can run home for lunch. It's not like she can make him something on a daily basis or see him walking through the streets or going to school. No, that's not how it is. She lives in another neighborhood, I mean, another city. She won't see him on a regular basis. She turns him over to Eli to raise. Boy, I'll tell you what. she gives her child back to God. And wouldn't that be something if we had the courage and the confidence in God to truly commit our children into his hands? That's what we ought to be able to do. That's not as easy as it sounds, though. We're going to have a baby dedication pretty soon, and and it's somewhat of a formalistic type of a thing. You know, we bring them up here, and we, we go through this ritual, and you know, we say we're committing this child back to God. But let me tell you something. There's no commitment to God unless you as a parent standing there make that personal commitment. I mean, and then it's really, it's, it's a lot, it's, a, it's really easy to say I commit my child to God as long as they're healthy, strong, and they're living close. But let, let the Lord allow something in their life, a difficult time in their life. Let the Lord decide to take them out of country or around the world as a missionary. Let the Lord permit them to suffer some things because of their faith in Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, then that'll really, that'll really challenge whether or not we were sincere with our commitment. I believe, without a doubt, we see here right off the bat, Hannah was a very sincere person. Hannah made a commitment to God and kept that commitment and surrendered and, and yielded her child back to God exactly as she had promised and as she had intended. And she turns him over to Eli, this priest. So here comes Samuel. He's just a young little fella. I mean, when Eli first sees this little boy, 
And that's all he would be, a very young boy. I mean, go to our four- and five-year-old class and just think about one of those kids being given to you. <laughs> Yay! <clears throat> and so <laughs> Eli sees this child for the first time, and he looks like any other child. He probably acted like any other child. He was just a normal boy. There wouldn't have been anything unique about his appearance, anything different about his countenance. He was just a normal little boy. But what greatness he would ultimately achieve. Samuel would arguably become one of Israel's greatest prophets and priests. He would anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. He would lead Israel in worship and a great victory over their enemies. Eli could have hardly imagined at that very moment the awesome weight of responsibility that rested on his shoulders. He couldn't have. He's just another boy, right? He's just a child. Oh, I know Hannah's surrendering the child to him. But, I mean, the thought of greatness, the thought of doing something beyond the realm of normal, I don't know that he would have ever thought, oh, yeah, this child will be the greatest priest that we've ever had. This child. I mean, he had his own sons. He had his own, own uh, children. I mean, this, this was one that was being given to him on loan to God. And yet the future of this young man rested in Eli's hands. Do you realize that the same is true with us concerning our children? The, the same is true concerning us and those Sunday school children or class that we teach? Or that nursery that we take care of? Those children we hold in our arms? That bus child that gets on our bus and off that bus or comes into the rally? I mean, the same is true. We are being entrusted with them by God. There's no way that you and I can honestly tell the potential of any child. We really can't tell. They all look alike. They all pretty much act alike. They're kids. They're children. And then again, there's adults and there's young people and we, we sometimes look at them and we say, oh boy, they have a lot of potential. But to think of them as being great, to think of them as taking their place in preeminence throughout history, that's kind of hard to imagine as we look at anyone. But then again, we don't really know what God can use them to do. Whether it's a convert that we led to Jesus Christ or whether it's someone we're discipling or possibly, just as I said earlier, a child in our classroom or on our buses or in the nursery. The fact is, is that they could be somebody very, very special that God is going to use in a supernatural way, a mighty way, an unusual way. So that means that we cannot ration our efforts or our investment in people. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, that means we need to give our very best to each and every one of them because not one of us really knows which one will be that one. It's for that reason that it's important that you and I surrender our lives to God and that we surrender our lives to His work without reservation. See, only by doing so can we ever hope to really reach our full potential 
And only by reaching our full potential can we lead others to the same end. The future of our faith and the future of those that follow depend upon that. So we can't imagine how God or what God can do or how He can use us in a life. We often downplay that, don't we? I mean, the power that we possess to mold and shape minds is often dismissed or it's discounted. Oh, I couldn't, God couldn't use me to help anybody really make an impact in a life, truly influence somebody in a major way. Well, that's not true at all. But it is true if you don't surrender your life. There's no way that you can possibly or I can possibly hope to make the impact in the life that God would intend us to until we are fully surrendered to Him. There's no limit to what God can do in a life or in the lives of others with a life surrendered. At the age of 14... An ignorant country boy who knew nothing about the Bible, nothing about the teaching of the Word of God, nothing about church, took his seat in a little room at the Cedar Creek Baptist Church outside of Louisville, Kentucky. There was a little Sunday school teacher there by the name of Daisy Hawes. There she stood in front of her class, and no different than any other week in her mind. But there was a guest there that day, a young boy. I mean, it wasn't unusual to have an extra child here or there, but there she sat and uh, stood before her children. And, and uh, in those days, it was a little different. Young men respected women a little bit more. And as a result, even though they were a little older, this young man being 14, Miss Daisy Hawes could handle him, take care of him. They listened to her, did what she said. But she stood before the class, and there she began to teach her lesson. And she shared with those children about Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Before she could finish the lesson, she heard a voice from the back say, "Uh, hold it. It was there that that young man of 14 put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his soul was saved. There at the Cedar Creek Baptist Church outside of Louisville, a seemingly insignificant encounter took place that day. But that encounter influenced and changed the course of history. That ignorant country boy grew up to be a great preacher. Lee Robertson's legacy as a mighty man of God began in 1942 when he was called to be the pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And for 40 years, 40 years and six months actually, between the years of 1942 and 1983, Dr. Robertson invested himself completely without reservation to the ministry of the local church. And during his tenure as pastor, more than 61,000 people walked the aisle and were saved. And over 43,000 people were baptized. In 1946, he founded the Tennessee Temple Schools, which has trained thousands of pastors, thousands of missionaries and Christian workers that serve in churches across this country and worldwide. Dr. Robertson became extremely well-known. He traveled, he preached, both nationally and internationally. God used him in a mighty way. Way up into his 90s, he continued to preach and continued to proclaim the Word of God. There that day... In that little country church, Miss Daisy Hawes, a faithful Sunday school teacher, 
simply gave her lesson like she does every single week. And yet that day, there was greatness in her midst. Thank God Miss Daisy Hawes was faithful and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is amazing what God can do with a life surrendered. He can do the miraculous with you. And He can do the miraculous through you today. And throughout history, there have been untold thousands and thousands who have been the, the instruments of change in our world. Their investment in others have salvaged lives, saved marriages, rescued the perishing, and literally turned nations to God. And it seems that those that made the most significant investments or significant, life-changing, alterating circumstances in the lives of men and women haven't been the great ones. It's the people that you don't ever hear about. It's just that, that faithful Sunday school teacher, that consistent mom or dad, it's, it's the little guy that truly makes the difference in lives and ultimately is used to change the world. Amen. On his 17th birthday, 1854, he went to Boston to seek employment. He became a clerk in Holton's Shoe Store. It was his uncle's enterprise. He had started the business some time before. One of the work requirements that, that he had, that he had to do this in order to work there, he had to attend church. Now, he wasn't really thrilled about attending church. He felt that it was rather boring and didn't really see the significance of it or the need for it. But a faithful Sunday school teacher encouraged him all the way through. One Saturday on April 21st, 1855, his teacher, Edward Kimball, walked into the store and he found the young salesman wrapping shoes. He said, I want to tell you how much Christ loves you. And after some time in the Word of God, going over the gospel of Jesus Christ, D.L. Moody knelt down and was converted that day. How many times had his teacher shared the message of salvation with a a Sunday school student? How many times had he walked the streets and met somebody and opened up his Bible? How many times had he done the work of God over and over and over again, standing before a class, proclaiming the word of truth, doing the work of God, and yet this time, he was in the midst of greatness. What may have seemed like just any other encounter with a 17-year-old boy would later prove to be the most significant encounter of the 1800s. For D.L. Moody would go on to start and pastor the famous Moody Church in Chicago. He evangelized both Europe and America, and he would see as many as one million souls come to Christ throughout his ministry. He would speak, and there would be times where over 20,000 people would assemble to hear him speak at one time. And he was responsible, as they say, for shaking two continents for Christ. See, it's amazing what God can do with a life surrendered. 
Thank you, Edward Kimball. Thank you for surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Our world has never been the same. After searching for salvation and the peace of eternal life for some time without result, a young man, just 16 years of age, was on his way to yet another church in order to find the way. He started off that morning with a specific destination in mind. But because of the weather, he could go no further. So he turned into a primitive Methodist church that was just on the way. In that chapel that night, there were probably a dozen or so people at the most. Again, the weather was very, very inclement. It was difficult. Snow was coming down. And that night... The pastor even was unable to make it to the service. But a man, a poor man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit and began to preach the word of God. He opened up his Bible to his text. And he stuck to that simple text because he really didn't have a whole lot other to say. And he would cry out on a regular basis, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words correctly. But that didn't matter that night. Because that 16-year-old would never be the same. He was gloriously saved. Many times it's been suggested that Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher this side of the Apostle Paul. He began preaching at the age of 16. By the time he was 25 years of age, he built London's famous Metropolitan Tabernacle that seated over 5,000 people. It was never large enough. Even when traveling, he preached to 10,000 eager listeners a week. Crowds thronged to hear him. At one point, there was a lottery so that you could hear him. You had to get tickets to get in and guarantee a seat. He preached the word of God, and the Spirit of God fell. He preached in cities like England, Scotland, and Ireland. Excuse me, countries. He penned a number of messages, of which reached to our day. Spurgeon's messages are still in print today, after all those years. Thank God for a faithful man. Even when the weather was inclement, even when the, the snow was pouring and nobody got out that night, when even the church only filled up with maybe a dozen or so people, and the preacher couldn't even make it out, thank God for a man that said, you know what, we're here, we're going to be faithful, and we're going to preach the truth. And he opened up his Bible and proclaimed a passage. As a result, once again... History was never the same. The world was never the same for having Charles Spurgeon. It's amazing what God can do with a life surrendered. I'm glad that man surrendered his life to the Lord. Again, you'll be amazed what he can do with your life surrendered. I want to encourage you to surrender your life. You, personally, may be the instrument God will use to raise up another Lee Robertson. To raise up a D.L. Moody or a Charles Spurgeon. You might be that tool that God will 
place in his hand. And he will use you in a way that will surprise you, startle you, and humble you at the same time. God may allow you to be the voice of influence in a life that will inspire them to greater heights than ever imagined. Literally, the world could be changed by your life surrender tonight. And that is a reality. I want to share four simple thoughts tonight in relationship to this, and we won't be long. But let me give you four simple thoughts concerning a life surrendered. First of all, let's pray. Father, we come to you. Help us in these next few minutes. Speak to our hearts, Lord. May we understand, Father, how important it is that we surrender our lives. Because, Lord, it could be in that surrendered life that, Father, the world could be changed. A person could be reached. A life could be influenced, impacted in a way that can change the course of history. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Number one, don't underestimate the significance of what you, you, what, what, um, what you can do. Or what you do, excuse me. Don't underestimate the significance of what you do. Um, you know, there are no little people and there are no little jobs. Now that, I can say that, but that's, I can say that, but, but, but that's not really believed. And that's evident in churches because people get all upset if they're not the one that gets to do the big jobs. And we all say, oh no, there's no little jobs, no little people. Uh, but then again, we want to choose who we go out soul winning with. And we want to determine who we get to help us in our class or who goes out with us. We, 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 oh, I don't want to go out with them. Oh, there's no little people or insignificant jobs. So. You get where I'm going with this? I want to tell you, though, don't underestimate what you are doing and the significance of what you do. You say, I only work in the nursery. It's no big deal. Don't, don't underestimate that. Don't underestimate the significance. Oh, I only clean the church. Uh, no, no, don't underestimate that. I, I, you need to be careful. In 1 Corinthians, look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Probably somewhat of a familiar passage if you've been in church any length of time. But if not, this may be something new to you. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, we begin reading. It says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that, it, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It doesn't say that they're not called, just not many. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. See, God uses those things that are weak, those things that are foolish, those things that are base, those things that are despised to accomplish His particular purpose and will. Now again, it's, it's just the way God is. Because, see, when it's all said and done, no one is to get the glory but Him. And so, therefore, often, because people are so, we are so flesh, we are so atomic in our nature, that the reality is we want the glory. Whether we admit it or not, that is a natural instinct of a human person to want the glory. And that is something you must fight with in your life. You say, I don't have any problem with it at all. Whatever. So the fact is, is that 
we struggle with this. And God understands that the more we have and, and the more that we somehow accumulate even materialistically and educationally and, and socially, we have a tendency to somehow think we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We did something to merit that position, that prosperity, that preeminence. But the fact is, is that God says that's why many of them are not chosen because they will not yield to me. They will not give me my just dessert, my due. But God uses the simple things because usually people that are simple, people that are despised, folks as he describes here in the passage that are foolish and weak, they say, God, I can't do it. It has to be you. And so he uses those people most often. Again, it's that seemingly insignificant boy or girl. It's that young person that doesn't seem to have the most potential. It's that man or woman who possibly doesn't appear to be up and coming. That God will ultimately call to be the next Fanny Crosby. Or the next Lee Robertson or Corey Ten Boom. And you know, you have to be faithful where you are. Can you imagine if you were the one that got to hold a Corey Ten Boom in your hands in the nursery? And she went on to ultimately accomplish what she did throughout the the German war and writing books afterwards and going on tour and sharing her faith and her, 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 her circumstances and how God met her needs throughout that time. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, I knew Corey. I used to hold her in my arms. Can you imagine? I'm just saying that God can use you where you're at. I don't think that's an insignificant place. If someone said, would you like to hold the next president of the United States in your arms, preacher? I'd say, absolutely. Let me do that. And boy, if I'm still alive when they get there, I'm going to be going, I held that one right there. You know that children are most influenced before the age of seven, and I was there to do it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, are you kidding me? The truth is, is that that young man, that young lady, that that boy, that girl, even that young single could possibly be the next leader of fundamentalism. They could be the next figurehead of our faith. They could be the next instrument God could use to spark a national revival, to turn the hearts of people in the United States back to God. Your efforts will not be wasted as long as your service is truly to the Lord. Number two, don't forget who you're working for. Don't ever forget that. I mean, we're working for God. People, you know, we, we look at our, our ministries and we think, oh, well, we're just going through the motions. There's no way. No one's going to get saved today and nothing's going to happen now. And, and I'm just wasting my time out here on VBS. I'm wasting my time over here in the afternoons in the bus ministry. I'm wasting my time coming to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, teaching kids, working in the, in the nurseries, doing all these things. I'm wasting time. I could be cutting grass at home. I could be getting some things done around the house. I could be doing this or that. I'm just wasting my time. No, you're not. You better remember who you're working for. Because it's not futile. It's not without cause. Matthew 19, 26 says, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
I don't know that we believe that as much as we used to. God has unlimited resources. And He can do the impossible in any life. Oh, you don't know how tough this life is. You don't know how difficult that guy or gal is. You don't realize the obstacles that I face in trying to reach them with the gospel. Let me tell you, nobody is bigger than God. Simply put your trust in the Lord to mold and to make them into the miracle of grace that He'd have them to become. Don't forget who you're working for. And don't underestimate the significance of what you do. Number three, don't forget that this work is an eternal work. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, the Bible says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you realize that the results of this work that we do as believers in the work of God, it often takes time. Have you figured that out yet? Because see, if you don't figure that one out, you will quickly become discouraged in the work of God. You'll feel as though you're pouring your life into someone or something and it's just not given back what it should. Well, let me say, first of all, that's a pretty selfish, self-centered, egotistical cynical spirit you have. Because I thought last time I checked, we don't do anything for ourselves. You say, well, I'm just human. That's the point. We are. And that's why we must remember this is an eternal work and it is God's work. It's not your work and it's not for you to be receive accolade or a pat on the back or to get something in return. No, God is saving that up in the future. Don't worry, we'll get to the next point. There is a payday ahead. But right now, we can't forget this is His work. It's for His glory, not ours. And so when we look at this work, it is eternal. It's going to take some time. That little boy that's still rolling off the chair and rolling around the room and won't sit straight and won't sit straight. Listen, it's going to take time for you to get a hold of his heart. It's going to take time for God to do a miracle in his life. It's going to take time for him to mature into the believer that he ought to be and ultimately grow up to be the man of God he ought to be. It takes time. Don't allow the devil to convince you that your efforts are in vain simply because you don't experience the visible results you desire and expect. Boy, that's so, so easy to do. You know, we start knocking doors and the first thing you think after about a week and you think, well, okay, maybe I need to get a little better at it. And then you've been out a month and you think, well, okay, I'm, I'm starting to get a little better at it, but it just doesn't seem it's working too good. And after about six months, here's what usually happens. This doesn't work. I'm not wasting my time. Wait, what doesn't work? Well, I'm not seeing anybody getting saved. I'm not seeing them walk down the aisle. I'm not getting, I'm going out and I hear about other people. They get to lead somebody. I mean, I, I heard about uh, uh, Miss, Mrs. Heike and a few of the ladies getting to lead somebody to the Lord last week. And I didn't get to lead nobody to the Lord. And I haven't gotten to lead anybody to the Lord all six months. It don't work. Don't work. Because you didn't see the results you thought you should see. Oh, you somehow thought that you leading someone to Christ, having the privilege to open the Bible and watching them walk down that Romans road and ultimately accept Christ as their Savior, that that's the payoff. That's the real goal. No, that's not the goal of soul winning. 
The real goal of soul winning is to warn people about the eternal future of damnation and of heaven to come. It's not about you winning anybody. It's about you warning them. Well, I haven't got to win anybody. Well, that sounds like a personal problem. Seems to me that if I were you, I would probably be praying and fasting. I'd probably be shedding a few more tears because those that weep uh, go with tears shall reap with joy. I'm just saying, why don't we stop trying to get the result and think that God owes us something instead just go in obedience and let God do something? Because, see, most often we want to see the result. We want God to give us a payoff. If I go in in life and I'm going to invest my money, I want to see a return immediately. Well, listen, I, I want you to know I treat... Lately, I've been treat, I treat my investments like I treat the Lord. I just hold on for dear life. I've got me Navistar International. I've had it for years. Years and years. I've never let it go. Don't even know where the paperwork is. I bought it for 875 bucks, 100 shares. Had a backward reverse split of 10 to 1. I have 10 shares now. I'm holding on for dear life. Maybe one day it'll pay off. God's work's eternal. You know, we try, we pass it off because we don't see the results we want immediately. Don't let the devil deceive you. Don't let him lie to you. That because you don't see the visible results that you think or believe you should, that somehow you are not being used to do something mighty on God's behalf. Don't do that. Don't let that happen to you. And finally, number four, don't ever doubt that payday is coming. It's coming. And don't, don't get discouraged. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And stick with it. Stay with it. Don't quit. As much as we want to see results in this life, and we do. We're human. We want to see them. I want to see them. I expect results from my staff. I expect results from, from this church. I expect us to see something. I expect God to do something. But sometimes what I expect isn't always what God comes through with. And sometimes I have to be careful that my expectations don't exceed God's purpose and plan. However, that is also another dangerous tool the devil uses. You don't set your expectations high enough You'll never accomplish anything on God's behalf. But let me say this. Because you have a class of four kids or eight kids or 12, it doesn't matter how many, don't you dare go in that class saying, well, there's only four kids. I don't need to really prepare that well. Boy, I'm glad Daisy Hawes didn't do that. I'm glad Daisy Hawes said, you know what? I'm going to prepare. I'm going to ready myself. I'm going to expect God to give me a visitor today. I got to believe she said that. And it was that visitor who ultimately became a great man of God and went on to do great things. Who knows how much the others did in the class. I, I did hear, I think, somewhere where there was a number of men that turned into preachers that went through her class, but I can't remember where I heard it, so I can't, I can't uh, actually say for sure. Let me ask you, do you, just out of curiosity, how many of you, don't, don't raise your hands, but how many of you that have ever taught here or are teachers ever prayed that the young men in your class become men of God and do something great for God one day. I wonder how many of us think that far ahead when we're teaching a, a, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a ten-year-old. 
It's amazing what God can do with a life surrender. As much as we want to see those results, there's one thing for sure where there's going to be a payday one day. If not in this life, in the next. God's keeping good records. And every prayer that we offer, every scripture we read, every passage that we study, every soul that we witness to, every deed that we do, every word that is spoken on His behalf, it'll be rewarded one day. You can count on it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. May we never forget that every single soul represented is one in which the Master died for. And, and it's somebody he wants to do a miracle in their life for. There's potential there. Because God is the one we're working for. So don't become weary in well-doing. The next Lee Robertson, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon may be sitting in your class. Could be riding his bike or her bike down the road in front of your house. Could be skateboarding down the street. Could possibly be sleeping in the room next to yours. It's an awesome responsibility, isn't it? To think that maybe we could influence greatness. We certainly could and can. Don't be weary in well-doing. Give God your best. It's just amazing what God can do with a life surrendered. A country preacher faithfully delivered a message of salvation to a very small, uneducated group. There was a young man in his late teens. He didn't weigh probably all but 92 pounds soaking wet. And he responded to the challenge and the call to full-time Christian service. At the time, no one thought much about it. Nobody was really that impressed. But some years later, that boy was used to build the largest and fastest-growing Sunday school in the world. Jack Hiles would pastor the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, and would see it grow to over 20,000. I mean, who would have ever dreamed that that young fella, just 92 pounds, soaking wet, 17 years old, would grow up to arguably become one of the most influential fundamental preachers of the last century. I mean, really, who would have thought that? Can you imagine? I mean, think about the young men before us today. I want all the young men that are 18 and younger to stand up. 18 and younger, all the young fellas. Go ahead, if you're, you're around here, anywhere... Young men, go ahead and stand up, 18 or younger. I want all of you to come forward now. Come stand in the front, 18 or younger. Come on. That's right. 18 or younger, here they come. If there's anybody, there's probably a few of you just kind of sitting there afraid to move, but look at them for just a minute. If I was going to say to you that one of these young men would go on ultimately to build the largest, fastest-growing Sunday school in America, would build it over 20,000 in, gen- in this generation. Probably not one of you would say, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, right. And I guarantee you couldn't pick which one was going to do it. You'd say, oh, well, it, it was, it's probably this brother because he's got a suit jacket on. He's from a good family, church family. Been around for years and years. His dad's a a preacher over at the Spanish church. Okay. 
been a lot of those before that have gone on to do nothing for God. I'm just saying, look at them. I mean, honestly, if we're not careful, we don't see them the way God sees them. We don't note their potential. We don't recognize that what God could do with them. And the truth is, is that what God can do with them is ultimately very much dependent on you and I being filled with the Spirit and ultimately being surrendered to God. Because if a Sunday school teacher isn't surrendered to God, they're certainly not filled with the Spirit. And if they're not filled with the Spirit, they certainly can't truly reach the heart of these young men as God intended them to. Don't you think for a minute that you can in your flesh accomplish what God did in the hearts of these men that went on to do great things if you're not filled with the Spirit? Don't you even dare disrespect God and His Word by somehow thinking you can live like you want to live, think like you want to think, do what you want to do, and God's going to use you to influence a great man of God. We are kidding ourselves today. We better stop playing games. And every last one of us, whether you're working in that nursery, whether you're cleaning this church, whether you're just out there, out knocking doors, it doesn't matter what you do in this ministry. We've got to get surrendered to God. And we've got to be doing it on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is a generation that is going to die and go to hell if we don't do something. And we need these young men to know what spirit-filled Christianity is truly all about. They need to know what it means to not only love the Lord in name, and in word, but in deed, and in truth. God help us. It is amazing what God can do with a life surrendered. Thank you, Daisy Hawes. Thank you, Edward Kimball. Thank you, faithful church member. Thank you, country preacher, for being faithful and being surrendered to God so that when the opportunity came to brush up against greatness... You are right with the Lord. Will you just simply surrender to God tonight? Gentlemen, would you please be seated? Thank you. Will you simply surrender to God tonight? Will you just say, Lord, I'm yours. Use me this week in a life. Keep me close to you. So that everything I say and do will inspire, encourage, and energize the hearts and minds of others for you. I'm confident, Lord, that I will reap if I faint not. So I will be faithful and trust you for the miracles that you can do in a life. Hey, it's amazing what God can do with a life surrendered. I trust that you'll be a life surrendered. Not just simply going through life. Father, we come to you.